Welcome to Episode 8, Obstacles to Successful Outcomes for Patients with Chronic Pain and Coexisting Disorders, by Dr. Stephen Grinstead, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Stephen Grinstead, and this is Chapter 2 of 3 of Using the Addiction-Free Pain Management System to Address Coexisting Disorders. The title of this presentation is Obstacles to Successful Outcomes for Patients Experiencing Chronic Pain and Coexisting Disorders. I want to start with a quote by E. Joseph Cosman. He says, obstacles are things a person sees when they take their eyes off the goal. And what happens for a lot of these people is all these obstacles are in place because people forget the goal is to restore our patients to a higher level of functioning and quality of life. I'm going to start this time talking about two of the patients that we've had here at a healing place. Jason is a 46-year-old married man with two teenage girls with one who is addicted to methamphetamine. Several years ago, he had an on-the-job injury in construction and had low back injury and placed on disability and prescribed opioids. This injury was very traumatic for him and he almost died, but he never received therapy for three years. Jason saw his pain meds also helped him with the uncomfortable memories of the injury. Because he was experiencing a lot of nightmares, he was prescribed daily Ambien and then he tripled the dose over a period of time. I'm going to talk more about how this plays into this chapter in a few minutes. But let me first introduce you to Maria. Maria was a 56-year-old married woman with one adult son and three grandchildren. Several years ago, she had an auto accident where her husband died and she was placed on disability due to neck injury and prescribed opioids and benzodiazepines for her grief and loss. This injury is very traumatic. She had major PTSD and survivor's guilt. She was driving the car. Unfortunately, she never received psychotherapy. This leads me into my history of working with this population. I've been working with people with chronic pain and coexisting disorders since about 1984. But then in 1986, I was hired at a hospital setting to primary therapist for their pain track. That's when I started noticing a syndrome with these people. And then we fast forward about 10 years, 1996, I was tasked by my mentor, Terry Gorski, to develop a system of relapse prevention for people in recovery who relapsed with medication use, especially over pain management. At the time, I was tasked with seeing what kind of research was out there regarding people with chronic pain and coexisting addiction when they went in to seek help. At the time, I had privileges and was teaching at several major universities, and I had access to their libraries. Now, this was pre-Google, so uh, searching was a lot different then than it is now. And after about four or five weeks, though, I was very frustrated because I couldn't find anything published with those search parameters about what happens for patient with chronic pain and coexisting addiction when they seek help. I found a lot of information about what happens for people with pain who seek help and a lot of people about addiction and what happens for them when they seek help. So I was a little bit despondent, to tell you the truth. 
But Mr. Gorski says, well, Steve, the solution's obvious. I didn't see it. So what he told me was, you've got to go out and do the research. Oh, wow, what a wake up. So I did. I started going around Northern California, where I was living at the time, and getting permission from pain doctors, pain clinics, addiction hospital-based programs, social model addiction programs, and not all of them was very happy and wouldn't let me in, but a number of them did. So over a three-year period, I conducted a lot of research. I interviewed a lot of pain patients who had coexisting addiction. And then it was about this time in the late 1990s, I decided I wanted to uh, up my degree, so I went and enrolled in a doctoral program. And my dissertation was Managing Pain and Coexisting Addiction. Now, this later became a book, Managing Pain and Coexisting Disorders, because what I discovered was there was a coexisting pain syndrome zone. And let me say a little bit more about that. When people have chronic pain, their lives are impacted biologically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually in many different ways. Their quality of life and levels of functioning are significantly reduced. Now let's move over to someone who's diagnosed with a mental health problem, depression, anxiety, PTSD, etc. When they seek help, it's because their lives are also impacted in those four quadrants, biologically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. And then finally, people who develop addictive disorders, their lives are also impacted in similar but different ways in all four of those quadrants. So traditionally, what has happened is when someone has chronic pain and the mental health and the addiction diagnoses don't get recognized or worse yet, they're recognized, but they're not treated. They're deferred and uh, sent out for sequential treatment. The same with people in mental health or in addiction treatment. And that is the problem because you would think that one plus one plus one equals three, but it doesn't. There's a synergistic effect and it becomes the coexisting pain syndrome. And that's what I want to address today because there are many problematic coexisting disorders that sabotage people living with chronic pain. And I want to list just a few right here. One is developing medication misuse, abuse, dependency, pseudo-addiction, and addiction. Another common diagnosis for the patients we see at a healing place, matter of fact, every single patient so far has had a moderate, severe, unresolved trauma history or PTSD. We've had many people with depression, depressive disorders, some with bipolar disorders. A number of other patients have different forms of anxiety disorders or social isolation. Sleep disorders are very common with this population. Many of the patients develop cognitive impairment, not from the medications, but from living with high levels of chronic pain day in, day out for years or even decades. And some people develop disordered eating or eating disorder. The other commonly misdiagnosed or misdiagnosis are the personality. And sometimes they're way overdiagnosed because they mimic the active symptoms of an addictive disorder or the protracted post-acute withdrawal symptoms. So these are some of the common coexisting disorders that if they don't get identified and treated can lead to treatment failure. So I think that is the number one obstacle to positive treatment outcomes is the failure to identify or treat coexisting disorders. But there are six other categories that are just as important. There's people who have family system problems. This shows up in many different ways. Sometimes it's codependency and enabling. Other times it's more about caregiver burnout, anger, resentment, 
marriages end, families are blown apart. Then the big one, and I'm going to go over these all of these more in depth, but another one is health care provider bias. Then there's the patient's own self-defeating reactions. There's a condition I call the chronic pain trance that many of the patients have lived in for years. And then there's the unrealistic expectations from healthcare providers in several different disciplines and from family members. And then another big one is sometimes for this population, a chronic pain patient who gets addicted to their psychoactive pain medication is they're not afforded medication-assisted treatment. I'm going to say a lot about that in the presentation. So let's continue with Jason's story. After his injury, let's go forward five years when he was finally referred to a healing place. We do an initial full integrated multidisciplinary assessment process. It takes three days or more. And some of the diagnosis we uncovered for Jason was, of course, opioid use disorder, sedative hypnotic use disorder from the benzodiazepine, PTSD, which was moderate to severe, right on the borderline. He had a generalized anxiety disorder. He had a psychological disorder that impacted his pain management. And basically, that diagnosis is because people are experiencing many more psychological emotional symptoms than physiological symptoms. And those psychological emotional symptoms distort or amplify the physiological. And then the final diagnosis was major depressive disorder. Uh, this is not uncommon. We usually have people with between four and six diagnoses we work on. Some of them have other diagnoses, but they aren't part of the problem list. We want to focus on a finite number. How about Maria? Well, her story lasted a little longer. It took her 15 years before she was referred to. And her life was really a tragedy that time. Her survivor's guilt continued. She almost committed suicide. And at the end of the assessment period, we diagnosed opioid use disorder and a hidden alcohol use disorder that she hid from her family and friends, a sedative hypnotic and uh, use disorder from the benzodiazepine. And our psychiatrist <clears throat> also diagnosed bipolar disorder, which no one else had ever seen in her, and generalized anxiety disorder. And for her, she had a somatic symptom disorder. So these are very big obstacles in roadblocks. Yeah, and they, it really gets in the way. So all these obstacles to treatment, the biggest one is, again, the failure to recognize or treat coexisting disorders. But let's talk about family system problems just a little bit more. With both of these people, their families were hugely impacted. At first, there was a lot of enabling and codependency going on. They were doing things for their dear loved ones that those people should have been doing for themselves they moved themselves into a victim role and there was a lot of secondary gain. They got a lot of attention, a lot of support, but eventually there became burnout and the family members started getting angry with resentment started to build. Uh, both of them were estranged for the most part from their family because of this untreated chronic pain syndrome. The other part of the problem for many of my patients is judgmental health care providers. That's us. Uh, a lot of times patients are sent to me and they're saying they don't believe me. They say my pain can't be that serious. They're minimizing it. They're, they're saying it's all in my head. And they're doing this because their diagnostics, their x-rays, their MRIs, their CAT scans say it can't possibly be as bad as I'm saying. And again, those type of diagnostic instruments do not measure pain. Pain is subjective. And they also fail 
to take into account the role of the coexisting psychological disorders and the developing substance disorders both of the experience. Then there was the blame the victim, and boy, this one for Maria especially. Uh, she had such a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt, and she said, I did it to myself, it's my fault, I shouldn't be alive, that's why she attempted suicide several times. And then there's a lot of their providers, both Jason and Maria, and I've seen this with many, many other pain patients, they get accused of being med-seeking or drug-seeking. And you know, many times what they're really seeking is, and both of them found that these psychoactive substances relieve their psychological, emotional pain too, and they, need, they didn't have any other tools, they weren't offered any. That is when they don't get integrated concurrent pain management, which we'll talk about in the third segment. And we'll continue Jason and Maria's story in that third segment. Now, it's not about always about other people. Sometimes the patient's self-defeating reactions are the cause of negative treatment outcomes popular. Many of these people, number one, I believe, cause is they become passive recipients instead of active participants in their own healing process. They want to be fixed. They get maliciously compliant with their care providers in order to keep the medications coming, but they give lip service to doing the other things they might be suggested. A lot of times, after living with pain for a period of time, the people get into a real hopeless, helpless, victim state of mind. And that shifts into experiencing a tremendous amount of grief and loss over their quality of life and their levels of functioning, uh, being a good father, a good mother, a good grandfather, a good grandmother, uh, being a good worker, being the breadwinner, a tremendous amount of shame and guilt over not being able to function. And again, a lot of these people go to their psychoactive medication to cope with those uncomfortable. When they develop depression and other coexisting disorders, and those don't get treated appropriately or get mistreated, this makes their pain condition even worse. Their level of functioning and quality of life further decreases, and they experience a tremendous amount of resistance and denial to becoming active participants. They just want the fix. They want the right pill, the right procedure, the right surgery, the right doctor, the right acupuncturist, the right chiropractor, the right psychotherapist, and then everything will be fine. But they aren't being motivated to become activists in their healing. And that was certainly true for both Maria and Jean. A lot of times pain patients get into power struggles with their treatment providers. And when that happens, it's a no-win scenario. Because the providers may think they win because they knock them into compliance. And the patients think they win because as soon as I leave here, I'll do what I damn well please. So nobody wins these power struggles. So they become major obstacles to positive outcomes. Both Jason and Maria entered what I called the chronic. A lot of, I talk about this a lot and people say, well, Steve, what is this chronic? Well, to put it really simply, it's where people living with chronic debilitating pain for years or decades develop an automatic, unconscious, self-defeating or dysfunctional coping styles that sabotage them from having a positive quality. A lot of times these perceptions and negative un, uh, mistaken beliefs lead to big cognitive distortions or negative thinking errors. Those thinking errors lead to many uncomfortable emotions, urges or impulses to cover those up or fix them, and that's where the medications. These people then develop this hopeless, helpless victim mindset. and. Most importantly, they've never been able to grieve and they've never had their coexisting depression treated. Depression is one of the big 
things that keeps people in tramp. Because even if they think they want to do better, depression tells them they don't, they can't, they don't have the energy, don't have the wherewithal, and they become again passive recipients and they keep spiraling down. It's like they're in the bottom of this deep, dark hole, like I mentioned in my first present. And when they're in this pit looking out, it seems like everybody else is enjoying life but them. And nobody understands them. When they do make an attempt to reach out, it's usually not received very well. And sometimes it's because how the request is delivered. And other times it's because the other people are just oblivious and uh, they don't get it. They don't really understand. Even loving family members don't understand what it's like to be in this position. When I work with family members, I try to ask them, have any, have any of you ever lived with chronic pain? Most of the time, none of them have. And then I go and say, well, have any of you ever experienced real serious acute pain, an injury, childbirth, some kind of uh, painful medical condition where your pain levels on a 1 to 10 scale were up at the 8, 9, or 10 level? And most people can identify at least one time in life with that. So then I try to get them into a guided imagery meditation about what that would be like if that levels of pain lasted with them day in, day out for months, weeks, years, or decades. What would happen for them? So developing empathy and compassion is really important. And again, lack of social and family support is one of the major obstacles for good treatment outcomes. That's why we will have a very strong family component to our Healing Place Triple Diagnosis Treatment Program. And not only do we have a three-day family workshop, but also before that workshop, family members have access to webinars, videos, and worksheets with parallel information that their loved ones receiving in treatment. We believe that's very important. And sometimes the family members get into this chronic pain trance with their loved one. And many times when people are stuck in this pit, they start going on a quest for the magical fix, the if only. If only I find the right pill, the right interventional pain procedure, the right surgery, the right person that can fix me, I can get out of this. But they really don't do a good job because, again, they still are passive recipients expected to be worked on rather than with. You know, there's a saying that the root of all resentments is unfulfilled expectations. So, talking about unrealistic expectations, let's talk about the three areas. You know, addiction medicine, mental health, pain medicine, and the family. So in addiction medicine, sometimes the mantra is don't take nothing no matter what. Abstinence is the solution, the only solution. And unfortunately, this leads to many chronic pain patients not being offered medication and treatment when they really need it. They're told you're whining, you're complaining, you need to learn to live with it, turn it over. Now, when I'm in a pain flare-up and somebody tells me things like that, I want to punch them. Now, not all addiction professionals are like that. That's the minority, thank God. But that can be at the extreme. So now let's talk about mental health providers. Sometimes a lot of mental health providers are more interested in the history, the family of origin, the why and how people got there rather than meeting the person where they're at and helping them develop a proactive strategic treatment to get them out. So psychotherapy is the only solution. Then with the pain management provider, the mistaken belief that led us to this chronic pain and opioid epidemic, the biomedical approach alone is the solution. People will benefit from the right medication, the right interventional pain procedures, the right surgery, everything will be fine. And that's, again, what has part, I believe, led us to this opioid epidemic. 
And then for the poor family members, they just want somebody to fix their loved one. So they're really stuck in some of the same places their loved one. Or they says, that's their problem, not mine. Just You just take them and fix them without empathy and compassion. It's like counterdependence instead of codependence. So these expectations are big blocks to successful outcome. One of the other problems, we talk about the patient's self-defeating reactions. Some people call that resistance and denial, but denial is such a pejorative term. This part of the presentation is taken from my book, uh, Denial Management for Effective Chronic Pain Management. In the 1990s, I worked with Terry Gorski to develop denial management counseling for effective recovery for addiction. And a few years later, I realized that I needed to modify this. And basically, where we're at now, when we present this information to our patients, we call it learning to recognize and manage our inner saboteur, also known as denial. And sometimes we need to explore what that is for the person. So, you know, think for a minute for all of you. I know I can, I can easily come up with examples, but was there a time in your life that you had a really exciting goal that you wanted to shoot for and it didn't happen? And in that instance, the major reason it didn't happen is because you got in your own way, you sabotaged. Can you identify? You know, I know I can. There were several instances when I'm looking back, I can really identify. We help our patients look at that so we can identify what we're talking about and normalize and depathologize or the inner saboteur. Many times when the this inner saboteur is present, it's like there's a committee in the head. There's this internal conflict and there's all these voices. And so the question becomes, which voice do you listen to? Yeah, do you listen to the voice of reason or the voice of chaos? The devil or the angel? You know, and a lot of times this is at a low conscious or unconscious level for patients. We introduce them to the concept, the Zen concept of the monkey mind. The first time I was exposed to this was when I was training in the martial arts with Sensei Kim. We were getting ready. Our dojo was in this big tournament. And before the tournament, we were literally bouncing off the walls, high energy, adrenaline pumping, and... Uh, excitement, nervous energy. Sensei Kim walked in and says, ah, the jungle is active. Let me tell you about the monkey. And that monkey mind is that hypervigilant part of it. In more modern terms, it's fight, flight, freeze, the amygdala limbic, the survival brain. But the monkey is always scanning the environment for And when the monkey sees that danger, there's a really quick decision. Can I fight it? Nope, too strong. Can I run from it? Nope, too fast. So freeze or get immobilized or hide. Now this can be a very positive thing in some cases to this defense mechanism. But unfortunately, it gets distorted when people live with chronic pain and coexisting disorders and they see threats when there really aren't there. And these denial patterns sabotage. So one of the things we do, whether it's that committee in the head, the monkey mind, cognitive distortions, whatever you want to call it, what we teach our patients, it's really an automatic and just set of mistaken thoughts, beliefs, opinions, and conclusions. And because of those, we can move into the monkey mind cycle or the self-defeating thinking cycle. What happens here, if you picture, uh, people develop problematic perceptions. Then they look out into the world to find evidence that supports that. They lock on to anything that supports their conclusion. They block out anything that counters it. And they want to reinforce these perceptions and beliefs. Then 
when we're in that place, then we start engaging in activities. Let's use a common one. Like some of the pain patients, and I was there in my early pain recovery too, believe a belief that I'm a loser. I'm no good. I'm not good enough. So we go out and look for evidence. I know for me, it was I could look at my former dojo mates watching perform, and I was seriously disabled and couldn't hardly walk. I'm a loser. And so I would show up as a loser. I would, or I wouldn't show up in any cases. So the next thing that happens is when people are in this cycle, they surround themselves with other people who reinforce their negative perceptions and mistake them. And even though people experience negative consequences, they can't seem to let go of that cycle. They get stuck. So we want to help them break that. We'll talk more about that in the next session. But basically what happens, those beliefs and perceptions lead to cognitive distortions or negative self-defeating thoughts. Those thoughts generate an emotional response and people have feelings, usually uncomfortable feelings, anger, fear, resentment, depression, sadness. And with those thoughts and feelings combined, there's self-defeating urges or impulses to do something, uh, sometimes to overuse medication to cope. Then urges plus decisions lead to the actions or the behaviors. And for every action, there's a social reaction. We teach people about that. But when this is operating automatically, people don't see this process. They don't see that they can stop and make a difference. And they don't know how to make better decisions. You know, I'm going to cover this more in the next session, but let me just briefly cover what we teach people, because I hate to present a problem without having a solution with people, is we teach them how to put themselves in timeout when they're moving into this cycle. Then when they're in that timeout to start doing something to bring their stress down, to chill out, to relax. And then once they get relaxed, see how the heck did I get myself here and what's the best way to get out in a healthy way. Then they make the decision to do that and then they activate the decision. And we'll, again, we'll talk more about that in the final session when we move fully into the solution. So let's shift for a minute from inner saboteur to the psychological defense mechanism that every human being on planet Earth has called the One of the things we need to do is have an operational definition. So we want to normalize and depathologize. So basically denial is an automatic and unconscious reaction that has a really good reason to protect us from painful reality from the pain of recognizing we're having serious problems that our life is all messed up. Unfortunately though, staying stuck in that denial can lead to the problem getting worse. And most importantly, it's part of being a student on classroom worth. Every human being has these and sometimes they're a blessing and sometimes they're a curse. The other thing about denial is the fuel source for our patterns is unlimited because it's uncomfortable emotions. And there's four primary drivers. The first one is anger, you know, where people says, man, this sucks. I don't like this. It's messing things up. Now, for many people, there's an emotion under the anger that they use the anger to cover up. And usually that's fear. But eventually they get into the fear. Oh God, this is getting worse. I can't solve it. This starts leading depression. And they have a tremendous amount of guilt. I really messed my life up. I've been something wrong. And then that leads to that toxic shame. I'm flawed. I'm defective. I'm a loser. And nothing ever is going to be good. So that intrinsic pain gets so bad that just thinking about and talking about my reality just hurts too much. So I'm going to find other ways to cope. And one of the most dysfunctional coping tools they use is medication, alcohol, or other drugs. But remember, any uncomfortable emotion, not just anger, fear, guilt, and shame, can fuel denial. 
sadness, loneliness, anxiety, any of the uncomfortable emotions can fuel the denial system. The other thing there's a lot of confusion about is there's levels. It's not just about being on or off. There's levels. The first level is where people have lack of information or the wrong information about the problem or what it takes to get in the solution. With this population, for example, they come in and they've been diagnosed with a substance use disorder, medication use disorder, and they say, oh no, that's not me because I have chronic pain and a licensed prescriber gave me this medication and told me I wouldn't get addicted because I have real pain. Now that's not true in some cases, I'll guarantee. Now the second level of denial we call conscious defensive. For example, if I'm at this level of conscious defensive level two, and there's something problematic going on in my life, deep inside I know that something's wrong with this picture, but I don't want to face the pain of knowing it. So I start convincing everybody around me that I can't possibly have this. And I get so good that eventually I could convince myself that my lies are true. But when I'm in this level, the second level, if you hook me up to a polygraph, it'll hit the liar-liar scale. Now when people stay at this conscious defensiveness long, along with the uh, effects of alcohol and other drugs, including medication, they can get to the third level, that automatic unconscious defense mechanism that guards us against our painful reality. For example, many people have uh, stayed at level two so long, they really started believing their own story and they shifted down to level three. The other problem is there's a final stage that's really challenging to deal with and we call it the delusion. This is where people over months years or decades have developed deeply entrenched mistaken beliefs that they hold on to in spite of overwhelming evidence contrary. Don't confuse me with the fact. And they honestly believe it. And no matter what you try, they're not going to get into it. We get people in this program at that level sometimes. Challenge, but we can do it to help get them out. So denial is one of the major obstacles to good treatment. Earlier, I mentioned that a lot of pain patients who develop medication use disorder, whether it's opiates or benzodiazepine, when they seek help, a lot of them need medication-assisted treatment. Now, they not only for the pain, but for the coexisting diagnoses that they've experienced. Unfortunately, according to SAMHSA, which came out in February of 2018, tip 63, they talked about the challenges of treatment. And one of the big things with that is urine drug testing and assessment. How do we do this? How often? When? If people are in a program and they need to be administratively discharged, what's the legal and ethical issues about that for safety? What happens for non-compliant? What happens if the person starts using other substances, including other prescription medication with their, their medication-assisted treatment, including alcohol, other drugs, even over-the-counter And what are the resulting complications sometimes? And sometimes legal and ethical challenges are really high for medication treatment. And when people have these co-occurring mental health disorders, it's a significant complication medication of treatment because those mental health disorders also need treatment. In our program, we have recovery-friendly pain medication and recovery-friendly psych medication. Want to step away from the benzodiazepine, step away from the agonist opioids, get people off of problematic medication, and for some people, they need a bridge, which can be Suboxone. It can be other things too, but we need to help them. There's a lot of, again, treatment resistance, and, and as we were researching and publishing the denial management books, 
Uh, we found a lot of that, that, uh, you know, addiction is a disease whose major symptom tells the person they don't have that. That's denial. So, you know, normalizing and depathologizing is crucial. And dealing with this resistance and denial is pre-treatment or getting people ready for treatment. In the stages model, this is getting someone from pre-contemplation into contemplation and then into determination. So that's where the denial management model combined with motivational interviewing work really well. So when people don't have providers that have expertise in that, that can be another obstacle for outcome. And then moving back into MAT from tip 63, you know, they talk about bridge or maintenance treatment combines pharmacotherapy with a full program of assessment, psychosocial interventions, and social services and is considered the gold standard and the most effective for most people. So when that medication maintenance treatment is provided, it may include long-term use of, say, methadone, buprenorphine, LAM, or naltrexone. And over time, a reduction of the medications or a reduction in the services once the people have internalized it and we want the patients to complete a comprehensive treatment program. One of the things that is really important, a big part of MAT, is to detox or remove people from the short-acting opioid. And at the same time, we might want to use medication assist and counsel social model programs that just help people weather through it and that can be very challenging, especially with high levels of opioid use, and getting moving towards stabilization. Medically supervised withdrawal involves controlled tapering at times of treatment medication or bridging it with a different medication like buprenorphine slash suboxone, but others can do it without the medication. A big part of MAT is also these new medications that have come out over the last 15, 20 years that have deterrence, what they call deterrence for abuse. Unfortunately, a lot of people figure out how to overcome those. So one is the combining the opiate agonist and delivering it in a format that cannot be crushed and extracted. Although, you know, good addicts have workarounds for all that you're seeing the FDA is now turning down some application. They said, there's enough of these out there. We don't need more. So the bottom line is medication-assisted treatment is very complex, and it's very controversial. Unfortunately, many addiction programs are not willing to embrace. They want the total absolute model. And for a lot of addiction people, heroin addiction or even prescription opioid addiction without chronic pain, that's very doable. But for people who have an underlying chronic pain condition, support and pain management, it can become one-way street to failure. And the bottom line is, and tragedy is, that only about one in three people who would really benefit are able to. And the, finally, many of the self-help programs stigmatize their members who are on Medicaid treatment and claim that they're not really. So, you know, in the next presentation, I'm, I'm gonna go back in and show how Jason and Maria have really uh, went from serious life-damaging concept to moving into health and healing. So some of the obstacles they experienced on the way were overwhelming, you know, the teenage daughter that got addicted to methamphetamine and all the trauma around that, the legal issue. Uh, Jason became an unfit parent by Child Protection Service uh, because of his living with chronic pain. It wasn't even about the medication, it was because he was so dysfunctional and he couldn't do good parenting because he spent 18 out of 24 hours in bed and uh, he was not functioning very well. And his cognition, his emotional regulation, really poor. 
So those were big obstacles. And then for Maria, her living with that high level of survivor's guilt uh, was really a major problem for her. So, you know, we need to look at all the way, things that get in people's way uh, for successful outcomes. You know, I think this might be a good time for to share my personal story because in 1981, I got the wake-up call that pain pills and alcohol weren't working for me. And I got into a healthy recovery process. And unfortunately, a year later, I was injured. But my problem really went back to childhood. Like both Jason and Maria had pre-existing trauma histories from childhood, as did I. So, you know, at a very young age, I learned that it wasn't safe to talk about feeling. At a very young age, I was forced to what I call a suit of armor. And at first, it was a leather suit of armor. And I can still remember at age five. At age five, I'm the oldest of nine boys. Not all nine of us have been born yet. But at age five, uh, living in Pueblo, Colorado, my mom was pregnant and I had two brothers at the time. My mom had nine boys in 14 years and no twins. So as you might imagine, attention and nurturing was hard to get in. So here I am at age five. It's June 1955, and every year, every summer, my dad went on an annual fishing trip with his work buddies to Pauline Creek. It's outside of Gunnison, Colorado, took four-wheel drive and still does. And here he's getting ready for this trip. And then he surprises me because, Stevie, you're coming with me this year. You're old enough to learn how to really fish. And so he took me with two of his work buddies. Wow, I was in Nirvana. I was in heaven. This was awesome. This was fabulous. So here we are on this trip. I'm getting lots of attention. And I'm the guys, the other guys are playing with. One of them went over and found a snowbank because in June in Colorado, you still have snowbank in the high country. And he started chasing me with snowball. He was going to throw it down my back. And here I am, five years old, running around like a maniac and decide, no, you're not gonna catch me. And so I came to the edge of a drop off a cliff and I saw him coming and I made a decision to jump. It was about oh, a little over 10 feet, maybe more. And when I fell, I landed wrong and twisted my ankle. So here I am, five years old, scared, hurting, sitting down at the bottom of this cliff, crying and all of a sudden, I look up and I see my daddy running towards me. I get excited. Oh my God, daddy's here. He's going to help me. So he comes over. He looks at me. He looks at my ankle. He feels around. And then he jerks me up to my feet. And he says, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Stevie, you've got to learn really right now that real men don't cry and you've got to be tough. So at that point, I made a decision. I'm not going to show my pain no matter what and I started donning this suit of armor. A few years later, I experienced sexual abuse from a teenage neighbor boy. And again, real men don't complain. They don't talk about this stuff. I held it all inside. And then here it is, age 12, playing football with my cousins and neighborhood friends. And I get knocked down and I injure my back on a concrete. I'm rushed to St. Mary Corwin Hospital Emergency Room, Pueblo, Colorado. Now, the emergency room, by this time, really knew the Gritstead boys, because one or the other was always into some kind of mischief and being hurt. So I'm sure they, they shot me up with something. It was probably Demerol. I don't know. But they sent me home with a prescription for pain med. Here I am, age 12. Now I am the super responsible older brother who is responsible, and if my brothers get in trouble, not only do they get punished, I do too. And there's a lot of pressure and stress on me. The first time I took that medication, it was like a soothing veil was put over me, a sanctuary blanket. It became a metal suit of armor. Life couldn't hurt me. 
And then about six months to a year later, I kept seeing this warning, do not take alcohol with this. Now, I come from a very alcoholic family system on both sides of the family. Aunts, uncles, and cousins, everybody into alcohol. And then one day I noticed underneath that warning, it says alcohol may intensify the effects. Now, normal people see that warning and there's no way they're going to take it. I saw that warning and it was like, wow, what an opportunity. And I was off and running and I was getting much more reinforced with all my denial patterns. All of my denial patterns were building up. I was really protecting myself against painful reality. And, you know, then I started to get social interaction and acceptance. I joined a gang. And then shortly after 18th birthday, I decided to join a professional gang, the United States Marine Corps. And that's when I put on the Kevlar. And there I learned that not only alcohol and pink pills, but being tough and physical and violent helped protect me from pain. And then eventually it got to the point where I put on the titanium, I look like iron. So all these were blocking me from seeing I had a problem. So all of this pre-existing history, until it got uncovered and discovered, kept me stuck and kept me from the best quality of life I could have. Now, I was highly functioning in my substance disorder, but it could have been so much better. But it's, I think it's a miracle, though, that when I got injured, I had been in recovery long enough to have a support system because that really saved my life. And I'll talk more about the solution in the next presentation, but basically, you know, it's... It's really important to help people explore and look at all the things that could sabotage good treatment outcomes. And I hope that you go ahead and do the post-test and the program evaluation so you get credit for this. So let's just do a really quick overview of this presentation, the obstacles to positive treatment outcomes. And the first one is the failure to recognize or treat the coexisting disorders <clears throat> or lifestyle issues. The second one is failure to involve the family in the treatment process because of family system problem. Family of origin problems also get in the way. So family systems work is really crucial and when that doesn't get implemented that's another way to have poor treatment outcomes. Area three is about the healthcare provider biases. You know, you did it to yourself, it's all in your head, you're drug seeking, you're med seeking, and you know, all you need to do is get psychotherapy, all you need to do is take nothing no matter what, all you need to do is take the right pill. So all of those health provider biases get in the two. And then, of course, the patient's own self-defeating pattern. And the biggest one there that I really want to emphasize on again is people becoming passive recipients and active participants in their healing process. This is probably the number one problem <clears throat> for the self-defeating patterns patients exhibit. But the other one is moving into or getting stuck in the chronic pain trance, that set of automatic and unconscious ways of coping with life and usually developing severe depression. Now, unrealistic expectations can also sabotage. Having healthy expectations on the hand can be part of the solution that we'll talk about next time. But if we have these expectations, that don't take nothing no matter what. Just do psychotherapy, figure out why you got this. Uh, just stick with the biomedical model, then everything will be. And then the last one, the last obstacle for the chronic pain patient with a substance disorder is not being able to utilize medication-assisted treatment intervention. And again, only one in three people that need this intervention actually get it.
So let me review briefly some of the common coexisting disorders in case you see any of those on the post. With this population of people living with chronic pain, we have medication misuse, abuse, pseudo-addiction, and addiction. We also have unresolved trauma disorders, PTSD, depressive disorders, bipolar disorders, anxiety disorders, sleep disorders. Five to seven percent of the general population have personality disorders, so we're going to run into those too. But a lot of these people who have pain and addiction often get misdiagnosed disorder, often borderline. Then the big one that gets overlooked a lot is people think the cognitive impairment is caused by the medication, and sometimes that's true, but sometimes the impairment is because of the remodeling effect of living with high levels of debilitating pain over months, years, and decades. And then finally, people develop disordered eating or eating disorders. So those are some of the most common coexisting disorders important to launch. And then what led me to all this work, the addiction pain, my first version before I moved in the coexisting pain syndrome. So remember, this is the synergistic effect of living with mental health diagnosis, addiction diagnosis, and chronic pain diagnosis. There's a synergistic effect. That's why in the next presentation, I'm going to present a synergistic solution. You know, it's the best people are getting today is sequential treatment. They're getting their chronic pain treated in one place, their mental health over there, addiction over there, and nobody's talking to each other, so there's no collaboration, and it's sequential treatment. So we need integrated concurrent treatment with a multidisciplinary team that develops a treatment plan that addresses the whole person and addresses this chronic pain syndrome, the coexisting pain syndrome. It's really, really important because there's a lot of people like Jason and there's a lot of people who have family members that are disrupted because of living with chronic pain. And you mix in substance disorders on it and other mental health disorders, it gets even When people aren't afforded access to critical interventions early on, you know, they live with things for a lot longer than they have to. Chronic pain remodels it really gets to the point where the pain system's always revved up and it's never revved down. At the same time, if people are using ongoing opioid, that they develop what's called opioid-induced hyperalgia. And actually, the simple version of this is the medication or causing the symptoms for the people that... A lot of these people with sleep disorders are ironically given sleeping pills that were never meant to be taken day in, day out. They were meant intermittent, like Linesta, Ambien. So what happens for these people is then they develop a substance disorder to that. And that also further impairs the psychological network. So let's go back to the beginning quote. Obstacles are thing a person sees when they take their eyes off the goal. So the goal here is to look and work with the whole person, not do symptom management. Symptom management has got us in this crisis we're in today. So let's step away from the biomedical model and integrate a biopsychosocial spiritual approach that I'm going to be covering in the final presentation. So I see I'm almost out of time here, so I really want to thank you for joining me. This has been an honor and a privilege to present this information, and my hope is that you can make a difference. When I first started working with Terry Gorski in 1991, he, he helped me develop a mission statement. I'm a little obsessive-compulsive, so when he first asked me, I sent him a two-page mission statement. He sent me back two words. Too long. Okay, so I cut it in half. I sent him back a one-page. He sent me back three words. Still too long. I broke it down to a paragraph, and he said, Steve, I want one phrase or sentence, please. So my mission 
has been to teach people how to help people. And the mission of a healing place is to help ease pain and suffering one patient and their family at a time. So thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.